0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LPN Show, recorded both in Los Angeles and New York City. We're just, you know, here to hang out, have a good time, all right. I'll talk to y'all after a while. Hello
1: everyone, how you doing? My name is Ed Larson from the Round Table of Gentlemen and the Brighter Side at Murder Fist and you know producer of of the Jeff Ross Roasts and the and the writer on the Roasts of Comedy Central but today I am here this is my first time hosting the LPN show and I got my main man Danny Bedrosian in the house what's up Danny how hey, you hey. doing
0: what's up Ed glad to be what's here what's going on yeah 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 baby I <laughs> love you um, love you too bro
1: Danny was also the first guest on the brighter side. We yes. did an episode on loneliness, so I feel like it's only right that you are the first person I interview on the LPN show. Keep it
0: fucking full circle. Yeah, pop and cherries, coast to coast. Yeah. God, I love (laughs) chicks.
1: Those of you who don't know who Danny Bedrosian is, uh, shame on you fuckers. Currently, he's the keyboardist for Parliament Funkadelic and the leader of his own band, Danny Bedrosian and the Secret Army. The man also has so many fucking solo albums, at least five different bands of his own, his own record label, Boz Funk Records, and a pretty badass podcast called Danny on Everything. Currently, he's working on and writing the official P-Funk Encyclopedia. But before we get into that, I got to ask, what is a booty, and how do you know if you're shaking it? Ooh, (laughs) bend
0: over. That's the only way you can figure it out. But a (laughs) butt.
1: Oh, man. Um, Now, uh, let me see. Uh, The real question is, how did a classically trained pianist uh who's also a, a historian on the armenian people get involved with uh
0: p-funk yeah it's weird it's, it seems weird it seems weird but like with anything p-funk it's all like six degree like the six degrees of kevin bacon it's like the three degrees of p-funk to anything anything that you talk about you could be like yeah. uh bandanas uh czechoslovakia uh uh the color purple like it doesn't matter and there'll be like a third degree you go right to p-funk um for me, yeah, I was classically trained since age three or four by my parents who were concert pianists. They ran a piano school uh, in New England. And so my sisters and I were enrolled in the school alongside the plethora of other students of of all ages and adults that went to my parents' piano school. And it was in the house. So we grew up playing classical yeah. classical music and hearing other kids and adults playing classical music all day, all night. I mean, my parents were workaholics. They ran the school for 50 years. They just retired recently. And um, so we'd come home from school. Oh, They're, congrats. Oh, yeah. yeah, big time. We'd come home from school and they'd they, we'd hear pianos down in the studio, two pianos at a time at least. And then we'd be practicing and then our parents would be practicing. And so it was just classical music all the time. And then Besides that, you know, my dad was a choir director at the local church. My mother was the organist. So we were in the choir too. So we learned like uh, harmonies and how to harmonize and sing in choirs. We all sang in choirs for years. And um, my parents were real hip when it came to music. They had like a really killer record collection. So I learned a lot about other genres as well through them. You know, my mother listened to the Beatles and Bob Marley and stuff like that. And my father, he took me to my first James Brown concert. And we used to listen to the jazz stations going home from choir practice. So, like, he really got me into R&B and funk, really, for my first, like, experience with Funk seeing James Brown at the Lowell Auditorium. Um, And then I found out about P-Funk. Yeah, amazing. And then I found out about P-Funk through sampling. You know, the kids my age growing up uh, all wanted to either play metal Hip hop or punk rock, mostly. But it was mostly metal and hip hop, like hardcore metal. Not even just metal. Like they'd be mad if you even called it metal. Yeah. They'd be like, "Metal's pussy. This is hardcore." It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, um, just that. <laughs> just <laughs> death that shit, to right? everything, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and then and then like a good portion of my friends listened to hip hop, and so me being like the musician in my group of friends or the keyboard player in my group of friends um i always played the keyboards in the hip-hop groups sang the hooks in the hip-hop groups helped produce the records and you know sell mix like not records Mm -hmm. mixtapes really at the like early step stage of mixtapes and perform at school dances because it'd always be like most of these hip-hop groups back then there'd be a dj and the dj used to do dances and like things around town and then there'd be mcs and then there was me like the the musician or whatever and then with uh, with the punk groups yeah. and, and metal groups that uh, you know, I'd be the guy playing keyboards. You know, they needed a keyboard player or somebody to help write songs or arrange, and that was sort of my job with that. And I discovered P funk through sampling, and once I discovered it, I was like, "Oh man, this is like a combination of everything I love." Like it was like the the classical side was there cuz you know Bernie Warrell was classically trained like me the keyboard player from Parliament Funkadelic and it's just there's classical music running all through that music yeah. and the R&B side which I loved and the um the rocks I mean they had their they had their heavy dose of psychedelia and like proto metal before there even was metal and um and they informed what became hip hop you know and jazz tons of jazz feel and tons of R&B feel and soul, and, and gospel, which I grew up with. So it was like everything I loved, blues and doo-wop and everything that I loved put all together in this like thing. And the more I discovered, the more I fell in love with it. And I realized it was like really vast. And you know, like my whole life, I always liked really vast shit, you know, like um, dinosaurs, you know, there's millions of dinosaurs. I liked dinosaurs, you know, and then it was like um, mythology yeah. you know like there's a million <laughs> gods in the myth- world of mythology you know and then when I discovered p I'm like oh man it's like more music than I could ever find I will never be able to find it all was like my, yeah. my th- feeling and it's pretty true like it's just you know more releases than any one band in human history and that blew my mind you know and then the history, you know, I was always into history, yeah. like you said, you know, I was into Armenian history and Middle Eastern studies. I went to school for history for, for Middle Eastern studies. And so, like, the part about P Funk is the longest running American group of all time, American popular music group, you know, 66 years. You know, everybody, you hear online, you're going to see, Woo! oh my God. And you can see shit online of people always talking about, oh, 50 years is like 50 year anniversary. No, it's not the 50 year anniversary, it's the 50 year anniversary of. The release of the first Funkadelic album, but George had a whole 16 years before that with a group called The Parliaments, and Parliaments is the P in P-Funk, yeah. so no, it doesn't start 50 years ago, it starts 66 years ago, 1955, and it's just a huge historical thing, and it just blew my Blaine mind. Plainfield,
1: New Jersey, right? That's
0: right, Blainfield, New Jersey, yeah, yeah, and... Uh, and so, you know, there's just so much to it that the historian in me was was my curiosity was more than peaked. And um and so yeah, that was sort of what got me into it was just all those aspects. Hell yeah. And tell me about the quilt contest. Yeah. Yeah, the bedsheet. Yeah. So <laughs> so uh <laughs> when I was 16, there was like this contest on one of P Funk's national tours where you could this is a time when George was wearing the bedsheets and he did this in the late 60s and early 70s and then he brought it back again in the 90s everything kind of goes full circle he brought it back again in the early 90s and was doing these like he cut a hole in a bedsheet put his head through it, and that's his costume like that's it you know and um
1: yeah just naked underneath
0: at most at a lot of the yeah especially in the early years that was the case um and <laughs> and you know I entered this costume this Costume contest, this bedsheet contest, thinking, you know, well, maybe I can, des- you have to design it. You, they, they, they told you exactly what kind of paints to get, what size bedsheet, where to get it from, what color, like everything. And um, I designed one on this white bedsheet and it had like all kinds of P Funk characters, the One Nation flag, rump of steel skin, and aliens and cartoon ducks and all kinds of crazy stuff, lyrics from different songs all over it. And they picked my bedsheet for the show at Lupos Heartbreak Hotel, the fame, the old school Lupos in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And me and a few members of my band and my sister, we went down to present the bedsheet to George. You know, and I got to meet George for the first time and the whole <laughs> band. And uh, and he wore it at yeah. that show, and I guess he wore it at a couple other shows too. And I got, you know, I still got the picture. I'm like 16 of me with George and every once in a while i break it out and show it on he'd be God. like oh shit you know like he's just like whoa but um <laughs> his memory is so good he still remembers like you know and like when he first met me he used to always call me boston danny cuz he met me down there in new england so like that was his relation to it but like even all the way now with me having worked for him what over 22 years now and having been in the band 18 years, he still remembers. You hey, remember when you made that bench, you know, in Providence, Rhode Island? Like you remember the city and like where his memory, <laughs> his so memory crazy. scares me. Like my memory's garbage compared to his. Like his his memory is incredible. And um, and yeah, that was my in. you know, like I showed some of the guys my music and they liked it. And I just stayed persistent. And they eventually invited me down to Florida to start doing sessions. And around the same time, they hired me on to do like spot gigs as a keyboard technician, setting up and troubleshooting and fixing the keyboards. And then after I graduated from college, because George was adamant, finish your college first, finish college. I finished college and on a whim, moved to Tallahassee, Florida, where the base of operations for P-Funk has been since like 96. And I moved down there in '03. And uh, within about three months is when I got my first actual playing gig with them. And it was uh, s- six months before I was on the payroll. So I, so it was pretty quick getting down there and getting in, you know. Um, but it was on a whim. It, it wasn't yeah. like there's definitely a job for you if you come down. It was kind of like finish school and then come down. We'll see what we can do, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, because like you had – Sweet Mother Child back in uh back in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Yeah. And that band was fucking crushing
0: it. Thank you. And so
1: you brought a couple of those guys down with you to tally. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. And the fucking, you guys were living in some crazy ass place. Oh my god. Selling your alarm clock for food. (laughs) I remember.
0: (laughs) It's so true. It's so true.
1: I remember you told me that one day. I'm like, I work at a restaurant. Like, let's feed you. Like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Like, what's going on? And that's where I met you was at um, Hooters. Yes. In Tallahassee Hooters. I remember you came up... uh, I saw you at a meeting. We had a big group meeting. You're with the new guy, and then you're just like, I was like, who is this crazy looking dude with a funk shirt on? And I was like, I like p funk. You're like, oh yeah, you know, I work with them. I was like, fuck you, you know, like, <laughs> I was like you don't work with me. And then and then it all kind of clicked in my head. It's like, you know, I have seen George Clinton in town before. You know, like it all like started to like to like click in my head what was going on. Yeah, why Tallahassee?
0: Why do, why is the P-Funk operation in Tallahassee? Well, you know, for the longest time, it was appropriately in Detroit, Michigan, or the whereabouts, you know, because the studios were all in Detroit, you know, through the heyday of, you know, even when George was living yeah. in New Jersey in the early years, he used to save up his money and drive to New York or Detroit. First, it was New York in like the early 60s, and then Detroit in like the mid 60s, once Motown mm-hmm. blew up. And all those sessions, those early period sessions, it's the Funk Brothers, you know, the Motown house band playing on George's records at that point. And, you know, he'd be the only one in the group who could afford so it. So crazy. Yeah. He was like the only group, one in the group who could afford it. So he'd go out there and record or do whatever and then come back. But like then by like, I don't know, 69, 70, they pretty much stayed in Detroit. They had one little hiatus in Toronto. I think that might have been to like stay away from the draft or something maybe. During the Vietnam thing, but like mm-hmm. other than that, it was pretty much Detroit through that that whole period seventies, eighties, nineties, and then by ninety six, you know George fell in love with this part of Florida because of fishing. So like he has this ah. tradition, yeah, that's the reason. So like he has this tradition where like when he's done with an album, he goes fishing, <laughs> and that's how you know the album's done. Like. F- <laughs> <laughs> So like, that's amazing. Like freshwater
1: or or uh, or did he hit the Gulf? I think
0: both, but he definitely both. Definitely both, now that I think of it. But like, yeah, he used yeah. to like St. George and that area around there. But he used to also go inland more mm-hmm. and other of places. Course. Yeah. So um and then he just ended up I mean, he ended up in Monticello first, uh, just because that's where they got the property. Uh, had some business partners that were from the greater Tallahassee area. They got some land and they built a studio in that that house. So the first studio down here was in Monticello. And that's when I first started working with them. Um, I was still in college. I came down for spring break and worked in the studio in Monticello. Then they moved it to another place in Tallahassee. I don't remember where. And then they moved it to another place in like the Motel 6. They like rented out or leased out the convention center in the motel six or whatever, and turned that into the studio. But I think his complaint was that he had to like break, yeah. break down the stuff every day, like some crazy thing. And, um, and then by the time I came down, they had just opened the studio on Hendrix. And that was like the one that it's been at ever since. And, you know, George and, and, over time, much like with My Sweet Mother Child guys, different people in the band in P-Funk also moved down to Tallahassee. A good portion of the singers lived down here from time to time. Myself, of course, as well as a lot of the crew guys. They always had, like, the sound guys were usually down here, engineers, uh, staff and and um, crew and management. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, but just certain ones. George, some of George's managers, some of his staff, all kind of congregated around Tallahassee, and that became like one of the hubs, if not the main hub. And it's sort of been that ever since, you know. And like, I just follow, you know, Peanut Johnson, who was one of the great backup singers for George. He said, "I go with George's." So, like, if George's in Detroit, that's where I'm going to be. If George's in Tallahassee, yeah. that's where I'm going to be. And that makes sense to me. And I've kind of followed Smart. that. Smart. Yeah, I've followed that through my tenure, and it makes the most sense. That's a man who will have a job forever. Exactly. That's how you stay in a band for 40 plus years, you know? Job security. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been my credo, too. And I that's what. Yeah.
1: So you're down in Tallahassee now. You're working at the new studio on Hendrix, which yeah. also just that must have sealed the deal when they looked at the place She's like oh it's on hendrix okay i know and uh <laughs> that's i love it's so fortuitous i love it yeah um but then you formed you formed uh, your first tallahassee band with uh, some uh, friends of mine and some other people you met at the school uh the liquid sand band you named and the band and you guys uh I did name yeah. the band. I did name the band. I think the other guys in the band didn't really like it that much. I loved it, but you, you, you dug it, and that's all that really matters. And uh, <laughs> but y'all used to play like, like we were back then. We were selling a bunch of weed and stuff, and oh, yeah. and you guys would play our house parties, and yep. that shit was cool as fuck. Um, let me let's listen to a clip right here. Fuck yeah! Master. That was us. <laughs> Hell yeah, man! That was amazing. I lo- I miss those shows. I fucking tell people those shows, and they th- tell people about that, and they think I'm lying to them. It was the coolest thing ever. I I just I couldn't believe that it was happening. Like you were just straight up bring members of the band to perform in my living room like once a month. Yeah. And it was like the craziest thing. We get like six kegs and I made my bedroom the VIP room and yes. I was like, only members of P-Funk and Hooters Girls allowed. You know, like, just, like <laughs> no, no one else could. I set up a full bar in my room. I put a keg in my room and like, it was just the crazy, I hired a bouncer to stand outside my bedroom. Like, it was the craziest. It was the most fun. I remember and, that like um, it was yesterday. I remember one time, the concert Cops came. Yeah, yeah, that was. Oh my god! <laughs> I was just like one of those moments. You're in it, and you're just like, "Holy shit! This is the craziest fucking thing that could ever happen." Yes. Uh, yeah, we'd have hundreds of people at my house. Hundreds. And the cops came one time, and I'm, yeah, it was insane. It was like it's so bad for the neighborhood, but no one ever really complained except one time. Um, we, so many people came to our party that the street was blocked with cars. Yeah. People just started parking, leaving their car in the street. Right. And then the cops came. They're like, listen, you know... There's no noise complaint, but you got to shut down the, you got to get people out of the street. Yeah. And so I, I like stopped the show and I got on the mic and I was like, listen, everyone, you know, the cops say these good, these good gentlemen over here say the party doesn't have to end. You just got to move your cars to a spot or something. Yeah. So if you can all go do that and come back, we'll say, and then the cops Went outside and directed traffic outside of the house for four hours.
0: That was crazy. while
1: like people, and then at four at four in the morning, they came in like, "Listen, you got to shut the party down." And I was like, you know, "I was so tired." I was like, "Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yes, let's let's end this, please." <laughs>
0: this party must. It was die. amazing. It, <laughs>
1: but, truth is, we just kicked out everyone who wasn't in the band and like fucking kept going yeah. till like seven in the morning, uh-huh but I mean, so it was it was amazing, and you I could tell back then how much everyone in the band respected and loved you. And like, you know, they were, they were down to come play my fucking shitty ass house for like 50 bucks. You know, like it was just like, we, we took a collection, we gave them a cup. Like, I think I gave the band $400. There's like eight of you, you yeah. know, like, it was just like, and then we took a collection and like, we give you what you can. It was just fun. Yeah. It, and was like, fun. it was love of the game shit, yeah. you know, and they were so down yeah. and they just kept going all night long. And I, I'll never forget. Forget it. Uh, to the end of uh, to to the end of time. Yeah, me too. But after that, you. So we're rolling out of time. Yeah, and then that's when you started to form. Secret Army, when Liquid Sand Band started going, you know, graduating from college and like some of those guys you still work
0: with, I know. Yeah. Rylan
1: Blackington being one of them. Yep. And uh, But I know you still work with Sean, right? Yeah, Sean and Daryl. Occasionally.
0: Darryl. And Daryl,
1: too. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that.
0: Yeah. And th- are they in Secret Army still or? No, they were never in Secret Army, but they do occasional session work with me and we do studio stuff together because, you know, Daryl lives in Miami, so like he- We've done stuff together, and we stay in touch. And then Sean and I have done a couple studio projects together. And Sean and I have played in a couple other, other bands together as well over time. So, yeah.
1: And so you graduate... From being a keyboard, a keyboard tech, yeah, and you, you're, you're officially in the group now, yeah. Your, uh, your, your you're keyboard. Whenever like Bernie or Jerome aren't there, or like they need a break, because, and then you hop in and you fucking crush it on like Red Hat Mama or some shit, yeah. And then, um, and but what was that conversation like with George when he asked you to like be in P Funk? Well, like, cause that's crazy to yeah. me. Yeah. I, I was
0: like. Well, like a lot of times people, like you get like a position on the road and then you get in where you fit in. And that's kind of how it works. Like I'd already had the teching position. When I came in the group, there were four keyboard players, including myself. So it was Bernie and Razor Sharp and Jerome and me. And then uh, pretty early on, Razor left. And then it was me, Bernie and Jerome. And I was studying under both of them, had been for several years. And... At first, it was kind of like I was double-dutying it. So I'd like tech and play, but only like spot, show, spot songs, certain things, certain spots. And then uh, when we got to Europe my first time, I had to fill in for the whole show now because Jerome couldn't go to Europe, so I had to go to Europe, so it'd be me and Bernie. And um, so that was when they started mm-hmm. getting me my own rig. But in Europe, they rent everything, so it was all rental by the time we got back, George, I remember George telling me, we're going to get you a rig. And I'll never forget Gary Scheider. We were in the back of the, the bus. And Gary's just like, he was second in command yeah. forever, forever and ever. And Gary was like, he'd be hit, hit you on the, yeah. like an arm. He, he Beautiful he, voice. He said he'd get you a rig he said he's going to get him a rig and like he just kept going back to it over and over again he's getting him a rig like we could be talking about some we could be like seven conversations past this hit me again in the shoulder he's getting him a rig like it just you know and like I, to try to like drive home to me i didn't understand half the stuff garrett was talking about until like decades later I'd be like oh that I, he was trying to drive home the fact this is a big deal because like people have come into the position and been yeah. forced to share a rig with somebody who's already there, or they don't get a rig until they something else, mm-hmm. but George got me a rig, you know bought me the keyboards, and that was the beginning of of a lot of stuff for me, so then, from that point, and then you know Bernie was like Bernie would introduce people to me as his protege have you met my protege danny pedrosian like that was like bernie's way of introducing really yeah so i was like his protege like by his word. unbelievable that's insane he he was really my he was my mentor but like i would have never called it that because i was always trying to be humble and modest and just not try to be overstepping but he was the one who created that terminology and like even his technicians used to say he had a few texts and they used to say um you know, he's never showed anybody this stuff before. He only has shown it to you like should really take that. I'm like, I don't take it for granted, you know. But he saw something in me cuz we were both classically trained. We both started at the same age. We both wrote our first pieces at the same age and we had like a lot of kind of parallel upbringing with our playing. And he liked the way I played and and um and you know, really, but he didn't He wasn't, he was hard. I mean, he was not, he did not make it easy. Like he was a hard teacher like my parents were. Like it was great. You know, everything was, he wouldn't show me the way to play dot, dot, dot. He showed me like eight ways to play every single phrase and every figure of every part of every song. There's not one way, there's eight, and you got to learn all of them, like every variation. And then he like really focused on feel, and you got to feel it this certain way. He'd be like gyrating on the side of the stage like you got to feel it like this. Like he'd be doing all kinds of crazy shit. So it was like <laughs> the whole he ran the whole gamut of like what you have to do and know and be and he would introduce me in that way. If you met my protege, Danny Bedrosian, like he even introduced me on the mic that way. I remember the first time I got to play like a solo, like a real solo in the show. And it was dur- during Funk and Teleki. And I just kind of mm-hmm. ripped one. Gary was like, Daniel? You know, and so I, I ripped a solo. And it was the first time I think some of them guys had heard me take a solo before. So like, and Bernie, he rushed up to the front, my protege, Daniel Bedrosian, you know, and it was at the Olympia. <laughs> It was amazing. It was, it was at the Olympia in Paris, which is like this famous, famous, huge, huge uh, like theater. You know, everybody's played there. The Stones, everybody's played mm-hmm. there. It's just a really famous club. Not club, theater venue. And, um, and that was like, to me, yeah. that was like a pivotal moment in my life and career, you know? And then when Bernie left, he was like, um, you're my... You're my successor, you're the person who success I'm like, oh Bernie God, I'm like, what I'm just another keyboard player among the keyboard players some makes somebody else, but he was like, no, you're my successor. I remember him saying that to me like some of these guys, the ones who aren't here anymore, especially That's so cool. they were very pointed about everything. Everything means this. it's not gray, it's this, this is what oh whereas I think like everything else in the world can kind of be painted. Uh, it's a little of this, it's a little of that, but those guys were so specific about what they did and why they did it, and what they wanted and how they wanted it to be, that um, it just it really resonated with me. And so, like, I did not take for granted, nor did I take uh, trifling that that fact that I was his successor, and you know, I ended up in his position on the stage, and I'm still there to this day, however many umpteen years later. You know, so it was crazy, crazy experience.
1: It's so fucking cool. And the thing with Bernie Worrell that I I think a lot of people don't realize is how important he is to music in general. Yeah. He's like one of the main people who, like, it's like he was, he played, not only did he play with P-Funk, he had an insane career outside of it. He had a great solo album. Uh, that you gotta check out that was produced by George and all that. It's unbelievable. But he went on to play with the talking heads. Yeah. And then he got involved in hip hop. Yeah. And uh, it, what what was the rest of his career like? I mean uh, tell he, me tell me about the other stuff he was in.
0: Well like even from like from doing this personnel encyclopedia like his his discography is pretty large and like he definitely did a lot of stuff with a lot of people and he has a lot of solo albums just spanning the decades much like George and Bootsy. He's part of that triumvirate yeah. with George and Bootsy. Most people who aren't like totally acquainted with P-Funk still know that those are like sort of the the Mount Rushmore of the P-Funk. Those are the three kind of big ones or the three head the three triumvirates, mm-hmm. you know, uh and 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 Bernie, yeah, he did Talking Heads. He's one of the few people to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, you know, with two different bands. And um wow. Yeah. And and I think the biggest contribution, though, um, is kind of his fusion of European classical music and African-American music. You know, like, he really Mm -hmm. created something that nobody had heard before. Because he was playing both. He was trained playing European classical music. And through his environment and his uh, situation in life, he was... Um, surrounded, playing R&B gigs, playing, he played behind quite a few big artists before he even got into P-Funk and, um, you know, soul singers and stuff like that. And so the combination and then ending up being like this, he's also kind of equated with, you know, most rock bands, if they ain't really feeling keyboards, they still love Bernie Worrell. Like he still is the exception to that rule, you know? And uh, I always tried to model myself after him well before I met him, just because he was that exception. Like, he wasn't like a regular keyboard player. So, like, everything he did was unorthodox, but he's really responsible for a fusion of sound that, like, has informed every genre and subgenre of modern popular music to this day. He's, like, super responsible for a lot of that. So, yeah, his influence goes far.
1: He's the best, and then we were talking about him. And you said the big three: George, him, and Bootsy. Yeah, and Bootsy came in from James Brown's band, right? And uh, he was he was playing. He replaced the uh, the JBs, right, or so, or, yeah, or was he, he part of the JBs? No, he,
0: well, I mean, what became the JBs? Yeah, but they were he replaced what was the JBs before that when they first um like walked out on James uh, arguing about money money issues and stuff so James hired Bootsy and Catfish mm-hmm. and Frankie and those guys and then when they left James their tenure with James only lasted i think like a year and a half and i mean but in that year and a half they mm-hmm. did you know super bad and sex machine and all these talking loud and saying nothing all these like big huge hits for James and then um then they he changed wa- his style. Changed his style, yeah, big time. And then they went to funkadelic. The whole band and Mass went into funkadelic, and they stayed with funkadelic at that point only like yeah. a year though. Again, it was like another year, year and a half, something, no more than that. And then by the time a cosmic slop, they were gone mm-hmm. again, and they tried to strike out on their own with their own thing. And then like another year late, they did about a year of that, and they came back. Uh, at least Bootsy, Catfish, and a couple of the other guys came back and rejoined Parliament and then Bootsy became really instrumental in helping uh, playing the bass and also drums and guitar on a lot of the P-Funk's biggest hits and then George you know to return the favor produced and helped create Bootsy's rubber band for Bootsy and helped create that character for Bootsy you know produced all of Bootsy's platinum albums so like it was yeah it was a big uh, collaboration between the three of them really but like but that's only part of the story. That's like the part of the story that most people know. That's like the Lennon and McCartney. But like you can't forget the Harrison and the Ringo and all. But with P Funk, there's a million Harrisons, a million Ringos, yeah. there's a million. You know, so it's like you can't forget Eddie Hazel and and Tiki Fulwood, Tal Ross, Billy Bass. Oh, of course, Boogie Ma Gary. Shad- I, got, you know. I
1: got notes. I got notes okay. over <laughs> here. <I> got- <laughs> but
0: yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. But that's like the you know that's like the primer for sure. That's definitely the primer for those who are are. Are you know, least experienced in it.
1: Something I learned about uh, recently, because uh, Bootsy is the connection between George and James Brown. Sure. Who are, you know, obviously, you know, there is other funk, but let's face it, that's like, that's the triumvirate, you know? Like, yeah. But he brought the one right to P-Funk. And, and uh, from what I understand, he's the one who taught George what the one is. Yeah, and f- if you could do me a favor and the audience a favor,
0: can yeah. you tell us what the one is? Yeah, well, definitely. Like, more so than I can tell you if that's necessarily how that went. Because I it's weird. Like, a lot of the stories that you hear the most times, like, there's, like, 10 or 12 stories you hear a lot in, like, the P-Funk documentaries or in the books. I don't know how that stuff went down for real. Yeah. Like, it is, like, there's probably, like, a grain of truth to it, and there's probably some of it that's, like, not all the way true. Because, like... um, they definitely were still playing funk before Bootsy was there, like. But uh, as George calls it, he called yeah. it that old basic funk. He you do know, that thing with that real basic funk, like, and and uh, it was like very much in the realm of like sort of what the Meters kind of were doing, Zigaboo modalist, and like that kind of funk. Um, Funkadelic, early Funkadelic, was very rootsy and and like gutter, like just the, the, what is it? The bare bones of funk. Like not to say it it wasn't simple, but it was that basic feel that was just, and it was a kind of feel that you either have it or you don't, you know what I mean? And so like a lot of the diehard fans, that early period before Bootsy was even there, that was like, that's like the, the Bible, you know, to, to the hardcore fans. It's like they call those people, the maggots, you know, to the maggots, that's like the 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 like, real deal the just, ugh, you know but um the one to answer your question the I one I guess
1: that's what i am cuz yeah. that's
0: my shit oh my god <laughs> but uh to answer your question the one um, well i'm a
1: student of you so
0: oh thank you uh, but, yeah like the one is super important it's super important <laughs> to the funk is something that james brown brought to the game i don't know if he invented it if i say he invented it i might be wrong but I, he he definitely coined it with uh, one big hit, especially cold sweat. And um, that's what like a lot of like funk historians like note as the beginning of what we consider the modern version of funk because the funk through the ages had like different meanings and different things. It's been a, a few different like genres sort of over time that have like been connected but not exactly the same. And so like the version of funk we know of today kind of started in 67 with cold sweat. And it's just where, like, the e- the emphasis on the beat, the first em- the first beat emphasis is harder than everything else. So it'll be like... Yeah. You know, like that kind of thing. And, you know, with P-Funk, their thing yeah. is pulling it way back before the ones, so like the four and three quarters is pulled, like, way back. And then they, boom, hit you with that tension release. Um, super important. But just, yeah, basically yeah. that first beat and then other people equate it to being the first beat and the first backbeat is the high. i've I've heard that before it's just like boom plap boom 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 plap boom you know that kind of thing and then there's like a a tertiary meaning of the one where it's like what it's become is like the one everybody is everything is on the one is all is on the one it's become this like sort of spiritual Uh, uh, zen kind of uh, religious aspect or connotation where it's like all is on the one everything is the one, the one is in us all everything comes back to one so like after one, two, three, four comes one again, it's not necessarily, you know like that sort of concept is like taking the the theory of western music one, two, three, four, one and applying it to a very eastern philosophy of the one is within us all like kind of combining west and east it's another sort of fusion of thought fusion of spirituality that's like what the one became over time but that's yeah that's basically the three meanings if you will you know of the one
1: i love it man i love (laughs)
0: it
1: now let's talk about the encyclopedia what's it so you are currently authoring the official p-funk encyclopedia what's it called
0: yeah canonized the authorized personnel encyclopedia of p-funk 1955 to 2021
1: I love it, man. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna play a little game here. Um, we're gonna we'll try to keep these tight. But um, so like as we were just saying earlier, P-Funk's not just George Clinton, right? Uh, uh you know, he, you know he's the boss. He's the boss. Yeah, you know, but there's so many. It's like Springsteen. You know, he's the boss, but he ain't shit without Max Weinberg and nice. Steven Van Sant. You know, so it's, just, it's 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 very important to remember the other guys. So I'm gonna say names to you, yeah, and you just tell me a little bit about them. Let's not sure. let's not spend too much time. Okay, it's okay. a uh, rapid fire, rapid yeah. fire. Okay, all right clip pain
0: oh the voice super important first one
1: clip pain yeah clip yes. pain
0: yeah super important the voice uh uh the mc of the live affairs uh writer producer conceptualist whatever you need him to be he's there to do it super humble that's clip hell yeah mm-hmm. um Eddie hazel oh man um dynamic master virtuoso guitar player uh really like the co-author of psychedelia as we know it uh, author of maggot brain as we you know one of the greatest guitar solos of all time but not that does not define him he has a huge body of just incredible work and one of the most amazing singers too
1: hell yeah he is maggot brain correct
0: yeah that's yeah sort of his like one of his monikers yeah yeah definitely Another one is Smedley Smorganoff. That's another Eddie Hazel nickname.
1: (laughs) I love that shit. Um, All right, Gary Scheider.
0: Oh, man, like the second-in-command, co-captain, beautiful gospel chords that nobody else could really play like him, gorgeous tenor voice that just reached up to the heavens and really was about making the machine work on the day-to-day, like... If he had to stay up 20 days in a row to keep the machine working, that's what he's going to do. Fuck yeah. Uh, Large Curry. Oh, man. Uh, Longest tenured bass player in P-Funk history. Uh, Extremely... Damn. Yeah, extremely pivotal member to the overall thing. Uh, Also incredible singer. Most of these guys are all incredible singers, too. Um, Fantastic bass player and just been down with George since he first came in. Just long tenure. Incredible, incredible feel and pocket.
1: The Sativa Diva.
0: Oh, George's granddaughter. Really like the beginning of the hip-hop influence inside of P-Funk kind of coming out. Like hip-hop had always found its way in P-Funk, but that's like P-Funk spitting hip-hop back out for the first time. She's like the beginning of that movement. Of hip hop coming out of P funk instead of it kind of bleeding in or it being you know what I'm saying so like showing the influence and pushing it back out yeah uh, definitely pivotal for that and also incredibly talented in the business side too as well
1: Michael Hampton
0: oh man Kid Funkadelic another virtuoso guitar player <laughs> you know sort of Eddie Hazel's successor in that way but also played with him quite a bit. Um, one of the only people I knew that could really do that maggot brain note for note, but more importantly, you know, the author of his own amazing solos like Knee Deep and Butt to Butt Resuscitation and so many others where like his melodies were like what a sing, how a singer, the melodic ideas of a singer is how sort of Michael thinks, you know, he is, his melody is just so lyrical, so lyrical. Yeah, badass to this day. Fuck yeah. Ruth Copeland. Oh, wow. Ruth Copeland is um, an incredible writer and singer, sort of like the Janice Joplin of the P Funk, who had her own, you know, really kind of storied career, but was helped along by George and the original Funkadelics. George and the five original Funkadelics sort of co produced, you know, George co produced or produced her music, and she was a big part of that early sort of Osmium era of parliament when they were doing like every weird genre you never knew parliament did like the closest P-Funk came to the Beatles is probably when Ruth Copeland was involved, you know, with George's overall production vision. Man
1: crying has made me stronger is one of my favorite fucking songs. Yes.
0: It's a beast.
1: Her, her two albums that she made with, uh, with george and the band i mean are unbelievable the only place i can find them on our youtube so go check those out yeah
0: please. uh jerome rogers oh man one of my mentors uh probably to this day the finest gospel organist i've ever heard and an incredible church churchified voice yeah, yeah monstrous monstrous organist he's really an organ you know people say well i'm a pianist i'm a I'm a keyboardist. He's an organist, like, all the way. You put him, forget all the knobs and the tricks and the other toys. Give him a Hammond B3 organ with a Leslie speaker and some bass pedals, and he is going to show you things you've never seen or heard before. Just a beast. And, yeah, amazing churchified voice, too, and a great writer.
1: All right, and I got one last one. But before we go into this, I want people to realize we could do this all fucking day. <laughs> yeah. Um, how many people have been in associated with Parliament Funkadelic?
0: I don't know. Hundreds. I don't even know. I have no idea. It's definitely, <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely like the largest, the largest personnel of any one band of all time, and the largest discography of any band mm-hmm. ever, ever, ever. So yeah. Monstrous um, input.
1: And the last one is someone I met through you who uh I mean, just an unbelievable performer.
0: Blackbird McKnight. Oh yeah. Virtuoso. What do you say gu- about him? Another virtuoso guitarist who can play more chords than anybody and is like a beautiful blending of jazz, rock and funk. He has like his own compositional style. Most of his records are his his tunes. He plays everything, the drums, the bass, the guitars a great arranger um, and just can solo and not play the same thing twice. He'll give you like a 40 minute solo and you won't hear him repeat anything. It's a beast. If you like, a, if you like jazz fusion, I love he's your guy for the P-Funk. You know, he's monstrous.
1: Yeah, man he's he'll he'll trip you out. Yeah, you know. So if for that and more, check out the encyclopedia when it comes out uh, pretty soon, hopefully. And uh, you know, Danny still has to has to finish writing it because he refuses to stop. I imagine you're just going to keep going. This thing's going to be longer than the actual Bible. Yeah. And uh, so I'm super excited for for it. I can't wait to get my copy when it comes out. I
0: think it already is. Is it out? No, I think it already is longer than the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like oh, 500 man. plus pages right now so it's like it's it's crazy i don't know Damn. i don't know why i decided to do this i mean like it's sort of something i've been wanting to do my whole life like i was in college like sitting there when i was supposed to be taking notes in math class i was writing down like all the songs ray davis sang on or like all the <laughs> songs that like perkash john played bass on like weird lists of different p-funk members and so this is something I've been destined to do for, like, half my life. And uh, it, the, I, I'm doing it, like, three steps. So, like, first step was um, write down everything I know. Because this is just song by song. Who played and sang on what songs? That's all it is. All the bands and their songs. That's essentially it's a list of songs and who played on them. Because if you go on these groups on Facebook, there's, like, probably 300 P-Funk-related Facebook groups. All they do, all they do <clears throat> is fight about who played or sang on what song. It's all they do. It's all they do. It's the whole conversation. <laughs> I'm trying to end that conversation as as, as delicately and, and tactfully as possible, even though it can never be truly ended. But um, the, so the first step I did was write down everything I know. And that was like 440 pages of information, just everything I know. Then the second step- Just out of your brain. Out of my brain. Yeah. And then the second step was there's four drawers, like chest drawers full of CDs that are my collection of the P-Funk discography, hundreds of albums. And so I went through okay. all of those and just dissected song titles and then went through which liner notes are right and which ones are wrong. Because some liner notes I couldn't use at all because they were totally wrong. And that's another reason why I'm writing the book um the miscrediting over the time and then the third part is 30 how f- does that happen uh it can anything from legalistic reasons to somebody's mad at somebody else <laughs> they don't want to give credit or somebody's <laughs> or, or, or somebody's guessing i know that feeling you know or, <laughs> or, or somebody's just guessing because the line of notes came out way after the fact or the fourth and most norm, the most common is they just give the the credits for the whole album instead of the song by song. So it just says bass, these 10 people, guitar, these 14 people. You just have to figure it out song by song. Okay. So that's, those are like the main reasons why it's miscredited or uncredited. Um, and then my last step, the third step. like Only someone like
1: you would actually know their style.
0: Well, there's several people out there that can, but even I get it wrong sometimes. And more importantly, and that's where it comes to the third step. The third step is a series of interviews, about 35 to 40 of them, um, with very pivotal, important people in the P Funk. George, first and foremost. Um, I already conducted my first interview with George for the book. Uh, We covered the first 15 years, it was a six hour interview. We covered the 55 to 70 or 71. I'm meeting him again this week to do, like, the next... The the next interview I know is only going to be... We're only going to probably get about nine years in, because the 70s is just so much stuff. Um, But this next interview, I'm trying to get, like, 70 to 79, if I can. Or 71 to 79, 72 to 79. And then... um, And there's about 35 to 38 other people that I've been interviewing, that I continue to interview. Almost every day I have a different interview with a different person from different eras. You know, I got people from the early 60s that I'm talking to, people from the early 80s that I'm talking to, people from the early 90s that I'm talking to, because every era has some kind of version of confusion. And um, I need as broad a spectrum of people that know this stuff as possible. So I've got like a really big list of people that I have and am continuing to and will be interviewing. And that'll wrap up the book. Once once I get all the interviews done, that'll pretty much fill in as many of the gaps as I need. And then then it'll be 8 million pages long. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Thank you. Um, There's
1: something that I just got into now recently, um, but it's been out for a while. It was on Cinemax. It's called Tales from the Tour Bus. Yeah, and you worked on that show a yeah. little bit. You helped. Um, you create help create the original music. Yeah, that's in the show. Right, and uh, and they actually you you sat down for an interview, but they didn't uh and tell some stories, but they didn't actually uh uh use any of it in they the show. They didn't use my uh, shit. Yeah, uh, you know, you know because they're fucking criminals. Uh, Would you mind mind giving us one of those
0: stories that you shared with them? Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, Well, first of all, yeah, I definitely, the music, and I didn't even know, I thought that I, at first I thought we only did the music on the P-Funk episode. But then I found out just recently, through the drummer, Ben Zell, who's the current drummer for P-Funk, we did the music for the whole show, for the whole series. Because I didn't watch any of the other ones until just recently. I'm like, Oh, that's that thing. Oh, because we did like, Ed, we did um like, I don't know, 12, 14 different pieces of music that we created on the spot. And it was, you know, it was the rhythm section of people. It was me, Blackbird, Lige, Benzel, and the P-Funk horns. And then George came in with the singers and they added stuff to some, but most of it is instrumental. So I like, you know, you hear most of it. It's mostly instrumental. And then yeah, the very first thing I did for the for the show was my interview. But you know, I don't feel terrible, even though I wanted to be a cartoon so bad. I wanted to be a cartoon so bad. But um Oh my god. You are a cartoon,
1: don't worry about it. <laughs>
0: Mike Judge was Mike <laughs> Judge was so cool. He was he was so down and like he was really cool to work with. So like I don't I don't miss, I don't regret any of it. Um, but I do wish I could have my interview could have been included. But there were several of our like I think there was about I don't know between eight and ten interviews that weren't included, including guys who have been in the band 45 years. Yeah. So, like, I was like, oh, okay, you know. And there were p- some people that I was like, they interviewed that guy, yeah. why did they interviewed, <laughs> I mean, you know, no names, but you know, but um, yeah, I told a bunch of stories. I yeah. wasn't sure what the realm, the, you know, because I watched the season before and it's like country dudes biting each other's ears off and all kinds of crazy stuff. So, I was like, okay, so. They want crazy yeah, stories. Lots of
1: gunplay. Lots yeah.
0: Of gu- yeah. So, speaking of gunplay, okay, one of the stories I told um, was we played this <laughs> festival called Schwagstock. And I think I told you this story before, maybe. And, um, like, as soon as we got there, some guy was getting airlifted for a heroin overdose by a helicopter. Like, it was out in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. Always a good sign Always of a good Always a good, good sign show. of a good festival. Yeah. And um, this was a crazy <laughs> festival because I remember mean, was like, the first time we played there, there was like eighteen hundred people, and then the next year we played there was like eighteen thousand people. It was like one of those type of festivals, so um, the damn f- that was crazy. Uh, but yeah, so we played there, and the crowd was huge. Crowd was great. They got down. It's also my longest show with George. It was 7 hours and 45 minutes. What? Yeah, no no intermission either.
1: 7 hours and 45 <laughs> minutes. Why? Like uh, who- <laughs> swagstock.
0: baby. swagstock.
1: I don't know. Oh my god. That is like that is an effect official like full shift of work
0: It's an official like full on
1: stage shift. not setting up and yeah. stripping down or rehearsal it is an eight hour shift on stage yeah. that shit's
0: insane and to me. that was at a time when the, the recreational pastimes of of parma Funkadelic were different than what they are now so it was like a whole different world you know like i feel like i've been in in my 18 years i've probably been in like six iterations of p-funk this was still that first iteration that I was in. And shit was still balls to the wall at this point. It was still crazy, crazy rock and roll, crazy, crazy, crazy. So mm-hmm. um, we're on stage and we're playing Atomic Dog, and Sir Nose comes up to me, and he's got this giant pinata. Now it's like probably about the size, it's probably about half the size of a of a car. Like these huge, like and he's holding it on these like yeah. marionette strings. <laughs> so he's got this giant pinata. And he hands me a um, he's, he hands me a, a a civil war rifle, like a period rifle, okay <laughs> so, and so I take the I take the rifle and and, and he's, he's looking at me, he's like, and we're playing, dog like we're playing like this you know nothing but the dog, and I mean we're playing right now, and it's in the vamp, and everything's kind of building it's all yeah. real, just like real heavy and people are on stage dancing from the audience. It's crazy. You know, it's the crazy part of the show. So I take the, the, the thing There's probably, you know, there's a thousand people, a couple thousand people in the audience. So I take the, um, the, the gun. Right. And I hit the, uh, I hit, I hit the, the pinata once. And it just (laughs) kind of like, like this, you know, and everybody goes, Oh, oh." I'm like, Oh, that's fine. So then, (laughs) then I, I, uh, I try hitting it, I hit it again, you know, like I'm I'm hitting it with the butt, with the, with the end, you know, with the, the, the the bigger end, thinking that's gonna like, you know. It's a musket. Yeah, it's a musket. It's like a real, like 19th century weapon, you know? So then I hit it again, it just kind of goes boom, boom. Everybody's like, boom, boom. I'm like, oh, this is so fucked up. So then I turned it around and I decided I'm gonna hit it with the, with the gun end, you know? So I hit it. I yeah. slap it and it breaks open right uppers downers laughers screamers baggies unknowns powders candies nuggets fungi pills tongue lashers oh my god aladdins uh, jerry jerry garcia's all, all over all over me you name it all over the audience all over the stage all <laughs> over the floor all over my keyboards you know and i'm like you know you can kind of see my keyboard right here right so i'm like i'm over there playing and i'm like dude student like picking it up i'm got picking up another one over here and i'm picking up another one over here <laughs> trying to grab, grab this one. and uh, and and just crazy that was everywhere and there you know um, that was one of the stories i told i also told the story about uh, uh, how the secret service was following us around during the campaign when bush what? yeah when the bush What Kerry, campaign bush and Kerry. So what was that 2005 yeah. or six, six, maybe four, four. Okay. Four. Yeah. Okay. And, um, yeah. Cause Obama was 2008. Right. So it was four. It was my first, it was, uh, my second or third, third tour. And it was the end of and, oh four, and I was my fourth tour. So that was the end of 04 and, um, and we were in the Midwest and we like our first show got canceled because Arnold and Bush were going to be across the street then the next show, we had to get out of town early because there was going to be a speech. Bush was coming to do a speech. And then there was another. We just ended up in the same city as them like four days in a row. So then we're at this old pancake house. And this dude in a suit comes in. He's like, how are you guys doing? How's everybody like? I thought it was the owner. You know, I thought it was the owner of the restaurant. Like, it's good, man. These pancakes are dynamite. Yeah. Oh, you know, like, this, it's good, you know. And uh, and and he's and he's just like good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Where are you guys going? Where are you going next? I'm like, oh man, should we go to Indianapolis? You know, whatever what were we were talking about. And we we're in Madison, Wisconsin. Like, cool. And then where? I'm like, oh, you know, and everybody was like, oh, we're going here. It's like, yeah. And he sits down. And he's like, then where are you guys going? I'm like, yeah, going to uh, Minneapolis. And he's like, yeah. Then where? And we're like, man, you don't own this place, do you? <laughs> Who are you? You know. And then we looked down. And it was like all around Check out the, the website. Bus. <laughs> All around the bus was Secret Service vehicles all around the tour bus. And there was like 20 of us from one of the buses was in the restaurant. So we were just eating. And he was like, oh, he had like the little microphone thing or whatever it is attached to the e- little ear pod thing. And and this, and and this I was like, oh, man, he's Secret Service. And we didn't even know. And they ended up following us for the rest of the tour. Like, we'll escort you out of the Midwest. Thank you very much. Like, they literally followed us for the rest of the tour. <laughs>
1: Oh my god! Well, I mean, you've never been safer.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> never been more secure. Um, yeah, no, you know, that's, I, you know that was one of the ones I thought I told some good ones, but then like after I saw the ones they did, like the ones they did were kind of safe, I think, in comparison. And I was talking about like something because then I told the yeah. one about I told the one about how when we first played in Chile. And uh, we mm-hmm. played at a place where, like, there was this, like, civil unrest. The college students were kind of, like, rioting. there was all this stuff going on. And the military police... No way. In Chile? <laughs> right. And the military police shut down. They were, <laughs> like, in the midst of shutting down the show. We were in the middle of, like, the show. And, um, you know, they already knocked our merch guys' stuff over. And they were arresting people. And they climb the stairs of the stage, and this is one of those big stages, like an indoor, like in a warehouse. And they the the stage was like yeah. no joke, like one of those like fifteen feet up, like really high stages, maybe even more, twenty feet. That's like, scary. Yeah, and then I have a riser, which is like another five feet. So it was like way, way up. So they climb the stage, they're coming out with guns, military police now, not just regular police, this is machine gun police, this is AK 47 police, Uzi police, you know. This isn't like holster police. This is we can't we there's no holster for this gun. You know what I mean? And um and they came in a line, like we're all wearing tuxedo shoes and shit. And they came, like 20 of them came onto stage. And like each member of the band is like stopping one at a time. Like it took like six minutes for the whole band to stop. You know what I mean? Like, and we're in the middle of knee deep, which is already like a 15-minute song. We do it live. It's like 25 minutes. So they climbed my riser mm. and put the gun like right up against my back. And and I was like, oh. What? So I stopped. Like I felt the gun on my back. And I turned around and he was right there behind me. And I was just like. Hands in the air. And then the drummer was the last one. So Frankie stopped last. He went boom. And he put the sticks down. And George said, What's up, fellas? What's going on, fellas? Like we didn't know what was happening. Uh we found out later that it had something to do with some kind of license. The club didn't have the people who rented out the warehouse didn't have whatever kind of license. I don't know if it was a liquor license. I don't know what it was. But um that was the case, and, uh, and ended up, you know, um, the students and the kids in the audience, was all young. It was all like 18 to 24 demographic, and they were tripping, and it was like a wave was washing down from the back to the front, coming towards the state, like a wave of kids, like angry that this music had stopped. And the police pulled back. They left. They said, you can keep going. We started over. I've never seen that before. We started the song over. We're already like ten minutes into this song, twelve minutes into the song. We started over. Kids <laughs> went, kids went crazy. The next day, we're on CNN. There's oh. a there's a video shot of me on CNN with the cop with the gun to my back and my face like. Hey, hey, everybody, like with this, like look on my face, profile, <laughs> profile view. Um, It was so silly. And as I told that story, I told, like, I guess it was like too politically. I don't know. Maybe it was just like too politically controversial. Man, I thought I told well, some good ones. I thought my stories were good. They only
1: gave you guys a half hour. You know, and they centered, and they also centered it centered it more around George than the rest of the band, which is appropriate uh, to me. I love, I like the whole series. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the entire series. But you know, I mean, you know, how does Rick James have two uh, two episodes and you guys only got one?
0: Right. You know, like
1: I, I wanted more. I wanted way more. You know, I guess they felt like because they gave Bootsy one and they gave George one yeah. that you guys got two. Yeah. In a way, but like I, to me, the whole series could have
0: just been P Funk, and like that's all you know that's
1: why I I put it on in the first place. Yeah. That's why everyone put it on in the first place.
0: I felt like I had good stories that people didn't know about the band. Like I felt like there was only one story in there that they ended up using that a lot of people didn't know is the one where they drove on to the set of night of the living dead or whatever. That was a good one. George told that one. That was cool. You know? Oh my God. But I felt like they should have so told more funny. more stories like that. Cause like, you don't hear that. You know what I mean? I thought like stuff you don't hear about the band. is kind of crazy. And I gave a few good ones, but apparently they weren't, I don't know. They weren't what they was looking for. I was so sad. It was more
1: of a biography yeah. than Tales from the Tour Bus. Yes, exactly. You know, that's what you did. You gave them Tales from the Tour Bus. Yes. You, you listened to the name of the show, and you did what you what they asked. Yes. You know, but it was more of just like a biography about George. Yeah. But still amazing. Yeah. Go check it out. You yeah. do the music for it. It's on Cinemax. I, I bought it on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, enjoy it out there. Um, two quick questions, and then yeah. we're going to wrap this baby up. Sure. You've been unbelievable, man. Oh, I, thank you. Um, uh, I what's the future for P Funk? george is 79 yeah uh like what's what's going on like what's going to happen in these next couple of years does it go on without him does he does he uh what happens
0: well i know that there's there's talk of more shows coming up in the somewhat near future not right away but kind of post-vaccination um and uh yeah you know, got, i got my first one today Fuck yeah, yeah. congrats yeah thanks so uh um there's already some stuff in the in the works and George will be very much there for it. So I don't know what his what his uh you know when his, his you know I think that being home has made him want to do it more. So I can't speak for that side of it. You know, they've been asking that question since way before I was in the band and he's still here, you know what I mean? He's outlived so many people. Yeah. He's out you know he's the, he's the um energizer bunny, you know? Like he just there is no I don't know. I don't it's know crazy. when he stops. I don't know when he's supposed to stop. Because even when they said he was going to, he didn't. So I don't I I know there will be more shows. I can tell you that much, Ed. There's more the P Funk has more to come. There's also like we're working on new albums, P Funk All Stars, there's new tours coming up soon. There's dates, there's stuff. So yeah, that's that's gonna be that's happening. That's happening.
1: I love it. I love it. And then, you know, if you can't wait. Uh, Danny has a new album out called Exaltation with Secret Army yeah. It is fucking awesome oh, It's a tribute you. to uh, Ar- uh, Armenia and the Arksaw people yep. um, If you want to hear more about that check out the episode We did on Brighter Side where we dive deep Into just that shit And it is uh, I learned so much That day and changed my opinion On a lot of things man Oh, thank um, you. That, that's going on over there so please check That out uh, That's available on Spotify uh, if you just look up the the brighter side of Armenia yeah. and um, it, the, I think this is the most important question, Danny. And I, I think uh, you'll have a better understanding of it than I do. Uh, it, it's a new era for music right now. Yeah. And, you know, no one's buying like albums and shit like that. How do we make sure some of our younger favorite musicians are, are making money and they they're able to keep doing the job that we want them to do for so long?
0: Um well I would say uh uh humor the very niche that they sort of represent. So like people aren't buying albums, but they probably still can. So like with, with P Funk, for instance, um, I put out albums still physically. I still put out CDs and I also getting into vinyl. Those are still available, so you should yeah. still support and get them because two reasons. One it gives the artist more money than than a stream. A stream doesn't give us anything. But we want you to listen to it. But the second reason is it sounds better on physical. It don't matter if it's a, a record, a CD, or even a tape. It sounds better on physical. It just does. Amen. So. You know, whether you got your headphones on or whether you listening at a party or listening at your house for fun, it's gonna sound better on the physical format than it ever will whether you got a phone or a stereo playing Spotify. Like it's just gonna sound better. But uh those are like big things you can do to help the artist because the artist is still doing niche things, like little niche things that they're like for instance, I got a comic book, you know, I'm doing comic books now too. The second issue of my comic book, we're doing pre-orders right now for Sons of the Sun, issue number two. So um, that's the kind of thing, you know, and hit us up on our PayPals. Hit us up on our Venmos, our cash apps, our Patreon site. What are those for
1: you, by the way?
0: Um, Mine. Okay, so my PayPal is info at dannybedrosian.com. My cash app is dollar sign Daniel Bedrosian. My Venmo is at Daniel Bedrosian. (laughs) And then my Patreon, I think, is just Patreon uh, slash or backslash Danny Danny Bedrosian. So you can go to any of those and find, you know, and, and pick up my new album. You can pre-order the comic book, and then I got two more albums coming out right around the corner. The garmia Caramel album with Damn. the Nalbandian brothers, these two Armenian producers. It's like super funky, super funky kind of Junie influenced p-funk type dance music was that hydrogen primate yes all of that stuff we're doing the full length album it's done it's coming out very soon and then i'm doing a p-funk like like classic sort of covers album that's gonna like be a compendium to the book so like it'll kind of go alongside oh, with the book fuck yeah yeah so those aren't available for pre-order yet but they're coming soon but you can pre-order the comic book right now uh 25 dollars uh, and, and you get a free CD. So you get some of the music too. Um, and, uh, uh, it's every story. So even if you missed the first one, we're selling the first one digitally cause it's sold out of copies already, but we're selling the first one digitally for 15, or you can get the second one physically for the 25 yeah. and every story is standalone. So you're not missing something. If you didn't read number one, every story is kind of uh, Self contained, you're not gonna miss out. You can still get the information you need, and it's like it's like Armenian Episodic. Thor. Yeah, it's like Armenian Thor. If you like Thor, it's like Hell yeah. but it's not just for Armenians, it's for everybody. It's just crazy mythology and fantasy, and like it's fun, you know, it's making history fun. And, uh, and there's so much to it. And I use a different artist for every issue, and um, definitely check it out Sons of the Sun. It's really cool.
1: Fuck yeah. And I need you to go over while you guys are hanging out and listen to this. Go over to DannyBedrosian.com. You, you can find out everything you need to know about Danny there. But also, I mean, a lot of people don't know this. You got like 20 albums yeah. of your own, right? Yeah. How many albums are like between Secret Army and just Danny Bedrosian that you, you, could find, you have created your own universe, like your own cinematic universe with these, with your characters and they're relating to each other. Yeah. And every album covers a fucking mind fuck. You got to just do a deep dive and all in Danny shit and then it, you will start understanding everything. Yeah. Exaltation is out now. You can listen to it on Spotify, but go buy it. Yes. Uh the P Funk Encyclopedia coming out soon. Uh Twitter at Bedrosian P Funk. Instagram Danny Bedrosian and check out his badass podcast, Danny on Everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh where's that available?
0: That's you can either if you want to listen to it, the audio only at Danny on or you can watch the the video episodes on YouTube. We got the Danny on everything podcast on youtube just look it up on youtube it's got all the all the newest episodes on video there
1: all right baby that's it that's uh that's the lpn show ed larson danny bedrosian uh freedom is the freedom to not to feel free is that how it goes freedom (laughs) is
0: free of the need to be free
1: that's right baby that is correct i love you so much buddy y'all have a great day and uh the funk lives forever